My name is Penny Lacasso and I am the world's first happiness hacker. Imagine a world where human happiness and well-being drove our decision-making. A world where technology was used to amplify human potential rather than replace it. The Human First Podcast is designed to encourage you to explore your curiosity about the future of humanity. Our conversations are focused on building skill in intentional adaptability, creating the foundation to positively influence the future for yourself, but also for others. Join me here each week as we put humans first. Milo Wilkinson, welcome to the Human First Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love the name. You look like you're about to burst out laughing. I tend to do that quite often. Us scientists are weird people. (laughs) (laughs) I just love seeing a smiling face in the context of what's going on at the moment. So you can smile at me for as long as this goes on. Now, tell us, the first question I ask everyone when they join this podcast is, tell us who you are as a human being. Oh, I'm forever 15 years old. So in my mind, I'm always looking for shenanigans and ways to get in trouble. Uh, I am innately kind. I try really hard to laugh a lot. I am the mother of two adorable children that challenge me physically, emotionally, and happily married uh, and humanly curious, always. I need demand. <laughs> was actually my sister. <laughs> I'm not going to cut that out because I love it. <laughs> it's something about being a family girl, but my sister works in emergency services, so I make her check in every day. She works in emergency services. Yeah. Her and her husband are police officers. Wow. And that's interesting. So what is she doing at the moment in the context of COVID-19? What's her... So- her husband um, is a sergeant in the inner Sydney CBD um, police. So they're basically helping a lot with the, you know, bus transfers from the airport to the hotels. Mm-hmm. And she works in the dispatch centre. So, you know, in the radio room where, you know, this officer goes this way or this car goes this way or this helicopter is needed for this requirement. Air traffic control for the police force, extremely stressful job. And that's such a, I mean, such an important role at the moment as well. So important at any time, but important at the moment. That's it. So my second question for you, now that we've got the phone calls out of the way, <laughs> is what does it mean to you to be human? To be human, I think it means to me specifically to be curious. Like I believe that my personal mantra is to lean into discomfort as often as is comfortable. And to be human is to be okay with all of the attributes that require humans to be kind, empathetic, aware, adaptable, um, connected, all of those things. And that's to me what I strive and that's what I teach my kids. So you couldn't have given me a more um, brilliant segue considering you don't know the questions that I'm going to ask. I'm slightly afraid, Penny LaCasso. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> it's all intentional. As I said to you, it's the, the best answers are the ones that come in the moment. I don't, I don't like people to prepare because I find the magic is in the moment. Yeah. So let me make sure I've got this right. Cause you've got eight degrees. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. We don't speak of that often. No, but it's fascinating because it's rare that you come across someone with eight degrees, right? So you're a bit of a, a serial academic. Yes. 
So you are a psychologist? Psychologist, yes. A psychologist? Yes. A psychotherapist? Yes. A behavioural scientist? Mm-hmm. Anything else? Hypnotherapist? <laughs> and anything else? No, that about sums it up. Okay. Don't do me. So you mentioned being human is being curious. Mm. And clearly, based on what you've studied, would it be fair to say that you're curious about human behaviour? Hugely curious. I, I grew up in a very, very large family and I was at the bottom stack of that family. So in the youngest segment of family, 14 sisters, one brother. And I believed that I didn't quite understand my family for a very, very long time. And I thought all the academics in the world would give me that insight. It still hasn't. So I'll have to keep going. But I'm just absolutely fascinated with human behavior across industries and products and people. And the best and the worst, I guess, is why I looked at criminal sciences. I wanted to understand not only what parts of the brain compel a criminal act, but the why what makes you do that? What were the leading moments before that act? And I'm just fascinated with humans. I have been my whole life. So in the context of the fact that we're both in Australia, we're probably about four weeks into the coronavirus pandemic in terms of people being kind of aware that this is serious. We're probably roughly around two weeks into self-isolation and physical distancing to the point where it's now being enforced by the police. Yeah. What has you curious in the context of human behaviour at the moment? Well, I have this theory, and it it stems from cognitive behavioural theories, I guess, that where you put your mind is, is where your body will follow. Now, if we say right now that there are a series of words that we're using around self-isolation, right? So if we look at the concept of self-isolation, the words that we put to that are things like enforced separation, physical confinement, withdrawal, quarantine, alone, all of those words, if you look at that, which is what was flashing on the television and I get the nine alerts on my phone every half an hour. If we look at the way that our brain is seeing that concept of isolation, we're almost telling ourselves that we're back at childhood Because all of those words, when we were kids, we were sent to our room as a punishment for misdeeds and it felt like we were actually in exile. So if you were grounded, you were prohibited contact, defriended, silence, given a silent treatment. So for an early age, your brain was predisposed to think that isolation is a punishment. Mm. And we are currently in this self-isolation period and we have to wonder that what is going to become of us if our words then equal our behaviours and equal our emotions. So what emotions do we have around, well, let's put it this way, the reality for all of us is that words determine how the brain interprets the world and then we apportion our emotions to these words. So if the words that we're using is enforced separation, physical confinement, withdrawal, quarantine, loss, then how do we not feel that in this current state only four weeks in? Imagine two months in. Mm. Completely. It's so interesting what you're saying because I always say, and I know you and I met through speaking at a conference Mm. in Cairns last year, and it was like one of those moments where you just meet a kindred spirit and we've kind of connected ever since. Mm. 
But it's so interesting. I think part of the reason we connect is we, we come at similar problems just with different angles. Yeah. And what you've just said is something I say all the time, which is the language you use will determine your ability to make change. Correct. And so language is such a powerful tool and it's something we all have access to in terms of reframing our mindset. Okay. What you're just talking about now is basically saying that all of the words that we are using around the context of the current environment is most likely not serving us in terms of Correct. a mindset that's going to be constructive, especially given we're already hearing that it's likely we're going to be in this situation for at least another three months. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So you and I spoke separately, which is why I wanted to do this podcast with you because I'm so fascinated. I mean, you work with cold cases, mm-hmm. you work with prisoners. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came up in our conversation prior to this was you talking about how our mindsets at the moment are not that dissimilar to prisoners who are in isolation. No, exactly. And there's, I'm going to take you back for a minute to a case study. It's probably widely known. So I don't want to use case studies that are so obscure, but in 1971, Stanford did the Stanford Prison Experiment where they basically got 24 university students who wanted to earn a little bit of extra dollars through a newspaper ad, and they split 24 of them in two. 12 of them will be guards, 12 of them will be prisoners. And for two weeks in a converted basement of the Stanford University, they played these roles. Now, there's so many things that I could wrap around that prison experiment, but what I'm particularly interested in the correlation between that experiment of 12 prisoners and 12 guards, that was a 14 day experiment lasted only six days. And it lasted only six days because they had become the roles to such an extent that it took 20 years for some of those prisoners to recover, that the guards were becoming forceful and vigilant. They were also bashing some of the prisoners after only four days. These were just kids given a role. And why I draw the correlation again is they were given a series of words or phrases. You are a guard. You are a prisoner. You are demeaned. You are alone. You are isolated. You are told what to do. You are preconditioned. And within a matter of two days, those prisoners became that role. Within four days, their emotional substance was that role. And within six days, the experiment had to end because they were so within the mindset and they could never see themselves as getting out of it. So correlating that now is if our words around the situation are in enforced loss and abandonment and all of those things in isolation how long do we think it's going to be before we start suffering the mental effects that somebody in say solitary confinement in a prison might suffer and we're already seeing that so the government 150 million dollars in mental health and what mental well-being black dog have got special covid pages on their website ways to actually work your mindset around the isolation that you're feeling. And when you're in a prison or an isolation effect, it's exactly the same symptoms that we're seeing now, which is twice the number of symptoms of trauma and stress and increased period of anxiety, higher frequency and higher intensity of anxiety um, compared to what it was even a month ago in society. So right now being in this aloneness in this alone time, whether you've got a house full of kids like me or you're by yourself, the fact that you do not have freedom of choice to go and have bacon and eggs at a coffee shop or go to the children's school or go to the local park or have a swim in the beach is enforced isolation, exactly the same mindset and physical effects as solitary confinement. So you mentioned before 
I, I just find this fascinating because like you, I'm fascinated by human behavior. You mentioned before some of the feelings. Tell me what someone going through this at the moment, what are sort of the range of feelings, someone, you know, feeling isolated and having, lacking freedom. What are some of the feelings that might resonate with people listening? Um, because I suppose I, I, I'm very adamant that we, um, the second to, second to flattening the curve, yeah? yeah, I think the second biggest priority we have as a society is how do we maintain our mental well-being? Yeah. Because that is going to determine how we get through this and equally how we can come out the other side in a way that is constructive, not destructive to humanity. Yeah, I agree. One of the insidious side effects of self-isolation for an extended period of time, and if I say extended period of time, I'll I'll put a line in the sand of two months, Mm. is the fact that we are conditioning ourselves every minute of the day to be without people. We are setting up the construct that we are within our confines and within our environments and this is becoming the new normal for us so the fact that i don't go to the coffee shop anymore Sunday morning the fact that i don't see my sister who i saw every other week is becoming the new normal for me and what that means is that two months three months four months or whenever we step out into the world again we are never going to be quite as comfortable as we were a month ago if you're going to a concert with 50,000 people or a sporting event, you will not be as comfortable as you were one month ago. And it will take some conditioning, almost reconditioning and reconditioning to step back into the world as we know it. We also know that from a brain's perspective, so if you look at the primal instinct of the brain, which is driving a lot of behaviour at the moment, especially with the toilet paper fighting and woolies, that we are meant to sit in groups of 15 or less in caves and not being eaten by what was potentially sitting outside. And that thing that sat outside was generally something you could see, smell or hear. Now that's not the case for us right now. So we're sitting in these groups of two, four, five, six within our housing um, minds. And our risk brain is just going at full extremes. So when the brain has no certainty, it sits at risk, which increases depression, anxiety, you know, lower in optimism, you could say lower resilience than you would normally have. And this is compounded over time. So you might have a good day and three bad days. You might have four bad days, one good day, or you might get up and convince yourself that every day is a wonderful day. And that's not the majority. So with the primal brain, it's sitting at risk. It's, it's got this heightened sense of worldliness Um, more towards the 70% that it naturally thinks negative. So if your brain's got 50,000 thoughts a day, which is the estimate, 70% of those normally are are negative thoughts. Um, You could probably say that that 70% is now 90% to the population. And what that also means is that you go outside, I say good morning to people, but I never get too close to them. I went to my daughter's school this morning. Everybody's standing way apart. Um, there was a little boy in the playground who my, my daughter just saw another human being ran towards him. And he's like, social distancing, social distancing. He's five. So <laughs> it's definitely a new world that our brain is now in, in all sense of our neurology and physiology and psychology is getting used to this being the new normal separation. And yet our ability to not only survive but to thrive has long depended on our social connections and what we invest in them yeah and it's scientifically proven that positive social connection makes us happy happier and healthier correct and yet we are almost reprogramming ourselves we're finding joys in different ways though so i don't want to 
for you and I, because we're naturally optimistic people, I don't want to paint the doomsday picture. I mean, we are finding very creative ways to socially connect. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine the other day had a birthday. She's always somebody that had a party for a birthday, no matter how old she turned. And she strapped a hundred balloons to her car and did drive by to all of her friends' house blasting the music. <laughs> people are having these drinking parties on a Saturday night virtually, which like it or not, as, as odd as it sounds, you listen more intently. You are more engaged in those types of things. And you wouldn't think that, that when we got home from work, we would sit in front of the TV, watch Married at First Sight with our phones. We're not doing that anymore. When work is done, the phone goes down, you become more present to the home domain. So whilst it is a new normal, we are reconfiguring that new normal to make allowances for the social construct because humans need it in a very different way. Yeah, I must say I've done Zoom calls with hundreds of people over the last couple of weeks, just humanly connecting, like for yeah. social connection. And the brilliance of it is that people don't talk over each other. They actually listen because you have to. Yeah. You really have to listen. And I, there's been real magic in that um, in terms of the level of engagement. I think humans will find ways and ways that we have to create ways for the elderly, for instance. I mean, the elderly are not going to find these ways that, that we do. Um, so, you know, checking in and calling in on the elderly is great, but also know that we're not supposed to be doing what we're doing. We are supposed to be sitting in caves of 15 where everybody has a role for pure survival. And you've got to kind of turn the mirror around a little bit and say, what is my role today for pure survival? Because at the baseline of the Maslow hierarchy, we're not going to ever get to the self-actualization in an environment like this. Very few people will achieve that unless in maybe a meditative state. But we're not just about survival. We can kind of go up and look for the joy as well. But it has to be an active pursuit. It doesn't just come. So that's interesting because... Um kind of leads to where I want to go next. So you've shared a lot about the feelings people will be feeling in, yeah. in, um, in this new normal that we find ourselves. And you've also shared a few positives. I'm and you've also mentioned the elderly. So I'm really intrigued um, as someone like many, I've got a 77 year old father who I spoke to this morning mm -hmm. who I adore, but he's been in lockdown um, for three weeks now, lives on his own has a disability, is considered highly vulnerable if he gets COVID. No one's able to see him. Yeah. Um, we're using Zoom to connect with him. And I suppose I'm thinking about him in the context of the isolation and the loneliness, even though we're all on the phone to him every single day. And I'm thinking, what if he's in that situation, which is highly possible, if we all go back to normal, that a lot of elderly people will still be in lockdown for quite some time until we get herd immunity. Mm. How do we help these people maintain their mental health if they are in that situation for six months? And it's a good question. If we go back to where we started our chat today, you know, in that the, the words drive the emotions, drive the actions, having a positive framework. So when I ring, I have a very similar situation. My mum is 77. Um, so is my dad. My mother, if she caught this, that would be the end of days for her. So we know, don't go near, don't, don't chat. When I have a conversation with her every couple of days, I look at what self-isolating words she's using and I switch them to solitude words. So, for instance, what I say is isolation words, as I said, are enforced separation and loss type words, whereas the solitudes means chosen separation because she's obsessed with Facebook and Netflix. So, you know, oh, you've got extra time to watch those types of things now, mum. 
Um, I talk about mental expansion. So what are you doing to grow your mind today? What, what's something new that you've learnt? I, I talk about preservation of just the house, as in my mum's a bit of a neat freak. So, you know, you don't have 16 grandchildren traps in their muddy feet because that's her great undoing. I talk about, you know, how are you turning your house into a retreat this week? So yesterday she cleaned her kitchen. She's wanted to do that for months. So I'm fully an advocate of the words that we use will drive the emotions, will drive the behaviours. Um, and when I'm speaking to my mother, because she is isolated, what words am I putting around this that are more about solitude as opposed to self-isolation? Oh, definitely be easy. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard for extended period of time. So again, I don't want to paint a rose garden. Um, it is hard for extended period of time, but my parents aren't toddlers. And I do say to them, I need you to understand that if we wrap negativity around this every day and you spend all day on the news flashes and all day on the nine sites and then you watch the special balls another night time, your behavior will follow. And, and I'm such an advocate for this that I'll share a case study that kind of got me on this path. There was a woman by the name of Dr. Ellen Langer who was a psych at Harvard and she took eight elderly gentlemen out of what she called God's waiting room. So out of the elderly center and they had to carry their own bags and their frames into a converted monastery uh, in, in New Hampshire. And the monastery was converted back to 1959 and they had Perry Como on the radio and Ed Sullivan on the television, no mirrors, all 1959 clothing and food. And these gentlemen went about this 1959 clock back project. On day four, they brought into an individual group of assessors and those assessors kind of looked at day one pictures and day four and had surmised that just by appearance, they'd re reversed the aging between four and eight years. And on day 14, these gentlemen had kind of improved their posture, their dexterity, their gait, their cognitive processing speed, their memory by on average 68% across the board. And on day 15, they played an impromptu game of touch football on the front lawn. So what that experiment ultimately chose for the elderly is where you put your mind is how quickly your body would follow. And where you put your body is where your mind can go. So when we're talking to our elderly and talking to our parents and just being human in the connection, perhaps talk to them about days where happiness wasn't so elusive where they were able to go out, where they went to a dance when they were 18 and got into a bit of mischief, where they got into some, put their mind back into the youthful space and the happy space as often as you can, because then their body will follow. Just before my grandma passed away 12 months ago, I went and sat in the aged care home and I spent mm. an hour and a half and I interviewed her about her life. Yes. And I recorded it. And it was one of the most magical hour and a half that I've had in the last two years. And fast forward, I think it was only, you know, a month or two later, she passed away. Ah. And she loved it. She loved going back over her old memories. So it was such a, it was just such a beautiful time for the two of us to share. And so often we don't do it. And the other magic was that I had all of these beautiful stories to share with other people when we celebrated her life. So it's really, and I never had any idea in the context of what you're talking about, but I have heard of that experiment. Yeah. So I just think that's such a gift. And I think, you know, what a beautiful thing to do now that we've got time with our parents, even though it's remotely, 
um, to, to ask those questions and interview them about their lives and, and seek to understand those stories that we just don't know about and take them back. I agree. And the good thing for us to do is not just to ask the question as if we're a journal unrelated to the subject, but ask the question and, and allow your imagination to go there whilst they're speaking. And, and what you'll also discover is that you will physically transform on that journey of the Q&A. And your grandmother probably physically transformed, you know, she probably her eyes got a gleam in it that you hadn't seen for 20 years and working through the mind is such a powerful place. The brain is such a powerful place. And wherever you allow your words to go, your emotions will follow and your actions will follow. And that's what happened in the counterclockwise experiment. And that's what happened to your grandmother. Well, it's visualization really, isn't it? It's carrying, like you say, and we know visualization is so powerful. So the next question I want to ask you, it's kind of a similar ilk. So I think some of the stuff you've given us is fantastic because it's so tangible in things that we can do right now, as you say, to start to change our language and also um, our, our behaviours in just little things we can do in the everyday to feel a little bit better or to bring joy to others in that process. So what I'm really interested in, my, my observations at the moment is that there are a lot of people out there um, reacting like you, you've um, spoken about and there's a lot of people out there obviously trying to salvage their businesses and selling things and trying to pivot online and um, put all of these offerings out there and all I'm observing uh, in the conversations that I have uh, and with what I'm seeing online I'm observing that people are not interested one in buying anything two they're not interested in any long-term professional development they're like, how the fuck do I just get through the next 24 hours? Like, seriously. Like, and, and I'm, you know, and that's for educated professionals. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I wonder what it's like for people who are, you know, in, in lower socioeconomic areas or, you know, even the homeless with the context of what's going on. So from everything that, that I'm, I'm doing and, and through what I'm observing is how can we meet people where, where, where they're at right now? Like, you know what, the reality is you don't need to work out what's going, going to go, happen in a month's time or six months' time because the, the reality is tomorrow things will be fundamentally different and no one can predict in the context of what's going on what that's going to look like. What advice would you have to help people maintain their sanity and their mental health? Mm in just getting through the next 24 hours, whether they're like you in your situation that we've spoken about with a couple of kids at home, trying to homeschool, you know, trying to work, trying to be productive, not being able to go out, not being able to humanly connect. What advice would you have for just being kind to yourself and get through the next 24 hours? I get asked this one a lot and I've got a very simple answer. You know, it, it, for me, studying all that I've studied, I could either dribble on myself in a lab somewhere as an academic or I can make sense to the masses, right? And I pride myself on making sense to the masses. So I'm going to do my very best to answer this simply. Just ask yourself, how am I? <laughs> ask yourself the freaking question. How are you doing today? And don't pretend it isn't any other answer but the first one that pops up into your head. And then don't be thinking that you can do that for 16 other people if you haven't done your self-inventory first. Because here's the thing. We are in what some people are classifying a grief cycle, right? So the grief cycle has five, six, seven stages depending on whose work you read. But understanding the grief cycle of where you're at and whatever that curve might look like for you, 
you know, you might be at the bargaining stage and if I only did this and if I went online, I'd salvage my business and if I pivoted and if I got a webinar and I opened up a podcast studio, you know, that bargaining stage of the grief cycle is understanding and accepting that you feel like you've lost something. So therefore I have to recover from it. There's the depression stage and it might be situational. I don't want to get out of bed today. I was there a couple of days ago. You're situational as in I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm more tired than normal. The alarm goes off in the morning and my alarm is my children. I don't want to get up. I don't want to do it. And it wasn't until I said to myself, you know what? Don't. It's okay. Don't do it. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do today. And when I allowed myself to hear that, so the words equals emotions equals behaviors, then I'm like, I feel good. I just needed to air that out for a minute and off I go. Understanding the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, first and foremost. Understand which stage you might be at because the last stage is in the acceptance of that. And when you're in the acceptance of that, that's when you can properly connect, properly pivot business models, properly make the right decisions and you come from a, a position of commercial want rather than commercial need. Understand where you're at. And then you are able to best place and help others do exactly that. But also know this, and, and this is a, a point that I make avidly. If you think the world is a wonderful place every minute of every day, that is wonderful and very unique. You are in the minority of the world right now. But if you think the world is a wonderful place every single day, I, I, I pride you for that and hold on to it because I'm 95% there. However, if you think that and then try and make everyone else believe that and do not acknowledge that they're completely at the opposite end of the spectrum, then you'll become even more isolated in your friendship group because they're just not having your merry sunshine attitude because they just cannot accept that that's where you're at and they're too far removed from you. So self-acknowledgement first, suppress nothing, not even fear, not anger, sadness, guilt or anything else. And then you can reach out to the world from a more genuine place of, I understand where you're coming from. That's all I can say on that one. It makes, it's, it makes complete and utter sense to me. The challenge, uh, the challenge in what you're saying, which yeah. I'm so fascinating, is that this is going to be new to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And you, you know this because we talk about this stuff. Yeah. It's going to be new to a lot of people because through the work that I've done, you know, even just over the last 12 months with thousands, so much of what I was talking about, which is when you and I connected, is this concept yeah. of a busy epidemic. Yeah. And what this, what's happened is, you know, our productivity has become our disease. Mm. Point where we have filled unconsciously every minute of every day to the point of avoiding how we really feel. Mm -hmm. And we've become so good at it that we're so disconnected from our feelings that many of us don't even know how we feel anymore. No, you're right. you're saying, and, and what you're saying is so simple in terms of just ask yourself, how mm. why? And mm. be honest and accept the first answer that comes into your head. For many people, that is going to be so unfamiliar. Yeah. It's almost weird. It is. And some people say, okay, that's what that scientist said, so I better do it as a tick box exercise. <laughs> Item number one of the day, agenda item two, here we go, tick. You know, it's not... <laughs> You almost have to ask the question, allow the space for answer to become to come to you physically and mentally, and then accept that answer as, as what it is. If that answer has an action item off the back of it, let the action item flow. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But we can't, the busy epidemic is, you know, a reason that I pride you in the work that you're doing. It can't be more succinct in the word busy. It has become an epidemic. 
that our productivity is the pandemic of the world right now. And this isolation is causing that to look fundamentally different. And the biggest risk we have is just basically taking a busy epidemic that we had in a different environment and yeah. recreating it in the new normal. Oh, I was laughing the other day, I have to say, that, you know, I work with some clients in a clinical sense over the years who have what are called a disassociative break. And the disassociative break is when you're fundamentally someone different at work than you are at home. Mm. And all of a sudden your work self is now the home self and they're merging into this one kind of character and, it, and, and that makes it even more uncomfortable than it ordinarily would be. So how are you kind of finding the home self and the work self when you're not swiping your key and that's your symbol to be your work self and the key back in the door is the home self and these two characters are merging and those, that the emergence of that character also looks like you cannot make decisions. It's almost debilitating. So I get that, you know, asking yourself of a morning, how are we today? It's not what have I got to do today, which is the usual question we asked ourselves. It's how are you? How are you feeling? You set up for the day, you're emotionally ready. And it's almost starting the day with this intention and this mindset of being mindful and then kind of going about the day. That way you become more congruent no matter what setting. I've got one more question for you. That's a shame. We're on fun. I know. I don't, well, I'm, I'm happy to keep going. So you, <laughs> I, I've got more questions. But one thing I'd love to ask you, and I always ask everyone at the end, but it may lead us somewhere else, is what one thing do you wish people would ask you that they never do? About me or about them? About life? About anything. How to own your space. That is the, the number one intention that's always unwritten and you know, I have this kind of air about me, this confidence. You could say that, you know, I, I, I'm quite academic, but I'm also really naughty with a wicked sense of humour. And I have this X factor that people put a finger on and it's almost like, how do you get a little bit of that? And a little bit of that is nothing short of owning your own space. Know who you are daily. Know what your intention is daily and be true to it. That's it. Never go to sleep at the end of the night saying I had 25 things on the list and I only got through five because the truth is you can only ever do five. You put 20 so part of you can have that familiar feeling of failure. But be very clear about who and what you are and then own it. And that's all I ever say. That's all I can ever give and that's all I can ever say. Know who you are and own it. No one else will. Where does that come from? I think having so many siblings and your space was, was rare. In my family, if you scuffed your knee, no one cared, right? And that's not a sob story. That's a dust yourself off and get on with it. So understanding, I remember, I'll tell you a little tiny story. I remember when I was five and I made my bed for the first time. And this was one of those life moments kind of stuck in my head. And, and it was so real because the bed had this fringing along the bottom. It was really quite complicated. And, and if you didn't make it right, the fringing was crooked to the floor. And I remember saying that and, and mom, I've made my bed and she comes in and not only alone, but with you know, five other siblings because my whole family travelled in packs. And mum had two minutes of time. She said, that's great, darling. Well done. And off she went. And then one sister's like, you should be proud of yourself. That's wonderful. And another sister's thrown the bedspread out. And, you know, that's crooked and that's got a thing. And another sister said, oh, I made my bed at four and I was younger than you and mine was better. And, and I remember just standing there amongst the sea of voices. And I thought to myself, do I think I made a good bed? And I remember my little five-year-old voice said, I thought it was pretty good. And I held that. It's like, I'm always going to have these opinions and I'm always going to have this family and I'm always going to have these people. 
but I'm going to hold on to what I thought first and then everyone else can weigh in. And that was it. I own my space. How many siblings in total? Because I think contextually. 16. 16 siblings. Mm -hmm. And where were you in the food chain? Third youngest, one boy, last. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Are you fascinated by human behaviour? I'm fascinated by human behaviour. I had no other profession choice. (laughs) Tell me how you create the space to focus on the things that matter to you. I don't always get this right. I'm going to preface with that. I don't always get this right. It is a constant battle. You know, I might wake up with my personal intention and fall down at the gate even by lunchtime. I haven't quite, you know, set the goal. But I find time to work on things for me because I know how I feel when I do. And I can either chase that feeling actively and think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away at the end of the day thinking, whew, I did something that really gets me, that really satisfies me, and I want that feeling versus the 25 lists of things and I failed at 20 and I chase that fear of failure every single day. I know what that feels like. I actively do not pursue it. So there's got to be the Milo list of satisfaction and then the, you know, esoteric giving mother, parent, wife list of satisfaction. They have to be an equal mix or I just, I don't, I'm just not happy. I know what my happiness line is and where it sits and what I need to stay on it and slightly above it at regular periods. So this will be my last question. <laughs> I'm... You say that to all the girls. I do, I do. <laughs> there's, so, there's so many I could ask you. I, I was fascinated from the moment I met you and you continue to fascinate me in a wonderful way. What I'm curious about is I have this, this crazy view that we have been given a beautiful gift in the context of what's going on. Um, because like you, I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist. And I think that whilst it's a painful gift, I think that Mother Nature has given us this moment of inflection. Mm. I feel like, um, you know, and it sounds a bit woo-woo, but which is anyone who knows me knows that that's not how I am. But I feel like, you know, basically she's sitting there going, you know what, I've been yelling at you for a while now yeah. and you haven't listened to me. So I'm going to send you to your metaphorical bedroom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you time out. Yeah. And I'm going to lock the door and leave you in there until you sort this shit out. And so I just feel like we have this moment in time to reset the foundations and really, truly look at how we connect with ourselves, how we connect with others and how we connect with this beautiful planet that mm. we have been gifted. If that craziness is somewhat true and mm. you kind of buy into even just a little bit of it, what would you like the future to look like? What would be a wonderful new normal? in the context of human behaviour or just in the context of humanity, in your view? Mm. I'd like us to be a little bit more curious, you know, a little bit more curious and open to what's possible, not the conscious or or the outcome bias that we currently live within, where we have a, a fixed mindset on a certain race, religion, country, demographic view, whatever it might be, that anything that we're looking at from an outsider's perspective, any news report we're watching, any concept course human being, be curious enough to understand it more and to bypass where your bias wants to land and say, I don't accept that. I'm, gonna, I'm going to go a little bit further on that. And that's kind of, that's how I'd like to see humanity, just go a little bit further 
because what you think is fact is not always true. That's a beautiful spot to pause. Can you tell us where people can find out more about you? Sure. I am uh, one of those things called a treasure hunt. So if you find me, you're <laughs> good luck to you. Um, <laughs> uh, Milo Wilkinson. Um, sorry, Milo at MiloWilkinson.com is my email address. So please feel free to send or ask any questions. And it is Milo like the drink if you're in Australia. Milo is a chocolate milkshake. I am slightly chocolate in colour. So you will remember that forever. Milo at MiloWilkinson.com. <laughs> Thank you so much, my dear friend. Thank you. I've had a ball. Brush <laughs> my hair for you. You're not the only one. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Human First Podcast. If you loved your experience, please take a moment to leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher and provide us with a rating. If you'd like to access the show notes or learn more about what we're up to in the context of humanizing the future, jump on over to humanfirstpodcast.com. See you next week.